Holly, would you share the, the burden you, you sensed from the Holy Spirit? And you guys remember as we hear these things, God calls these, us to take these, these words seriously, to examine them, to search them out, to take the good, and to use our Berean minds, biblical minds, to say, I don't know if that's from the Lord, but I think this is from the Lord. And, and we want to search these things out in our hearts. So be asking the Lord, Lord, do you have something for me in this? And, um, or d- would you want me to just say, I don't think this is for me. So um, just trying to help us be uh, obedient to what God calls us to do with words of prophecy is to hold fast to what is good and to, um, to be able to discern what's from the Lord in these things. So Holly, proceed, please. Thank you. When I first came in this morning, we were talking about just what a sweet, sweet moment in time these Sunday mornings are. And, and I, I always come in with anticipation of, Lord, what, what will you do? I really believe it's a, a glimpse of heaven. I mean, just a little foretaste of to be here corporately together, united by Jesus. Um, and so I, I say that just to um, encourage all of you um, to come in. He's, he's speaking. And... Um, to, to be anticipating what he may want to say through you, to you, for the edification and the building up of his body. So um, this morning, as, as Albert was, was speaking about the, the temple, and um, I just I believe that, that God is saying, in a sense, take your shoes off for this place is holy, um, that, that, that he is here. He is present. He is with us. He is brooding amongst us. And, and we are not here this morning just to do a thing. We're not here this morning just to, to do church. We are here because he has drawn each one of us here. And, and um, it is good for us to be aware of our desperate state before him. Um, Psalm 27 says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And I, and I pray, God, that that would be the cry of my heart, of our hearts, that we would say, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, and we are his temple together. And so the sense that I had was that gazing as we, we ask him to open up our eyes, and we've been singing about this this morning, to open up our eyes, to gaze upon his beauty, that, that in my mind I just kind of see, see hands, um, and that, that, that there may be things that maybe some of us are holding on to, our, our, our fingers tightly wrapped around, that God would ever so gently want to just give us a, a, a spirit of surrender, to, to open up our hands, um, not necessarily for him to pull anything out of our hands, but just have that sense of, that spirit of willingness, of surrender. So if there is anything that, that maybe God would want to, maybe he's speaking to you to, my child, my daughter, my son, open up your hands. 
so I can fill your hands, so that you can gaze upon a greater beauty. I want to bless you with a greater, the greatest beauty for you to gaze upon. And if your hands are clenched closed tightly, you do not have room for me to fill them, for you to see the greatest beauty that I want you to see. Thank you so much, Holly. There's so much about what Holly just said that feels like it's um, resonating with the message today and even, even speaking into it, you know, as I consider these words that have been percolating in my mind from Hebrews that I want to talk with you guys about today. So um, particularly this real sense of how God has made us fit to be with him and to draw near to him. For thousands of years before Jesus was born, and in within that many thousands of years, within Israel's history as a nation over centuries, God, in his love for the world, in his love for the world, has been seeking to reveal to the world that he is a holy God and a holy God whom before sin is not acceptable and must be atoned for. for. For the devout Jewish man or woman at the time of Jesus who went to the synagogue, who heard what God had been trying to tell the Hebrew people through the scriptures, this idea of God's holiness and our need in light of our sin for atonement, for payment, for repair and restoration before God would have been front and center to them. The sacred scriptures they had and grown up with through centuries would have told them, they would remember <clears throat> that the first sin in the Garden of Eden of Adam and Eve led to the first blood sacrifice when an animal was killed so that they could be covered by God. They would remember <laughs> that before that day, there was no idea of this thing called sacrifice. There was no idea of this thing called offering of a sacrifice to God for our sin. But something happened that day that required the life of a being to be spilled out for, they, for them to be covered. And something happened that day when they were, they were expelled from God's presence like they had been intimate with before. And they would remember that Cain murdered his brother who was jealous of God's approval of Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's sacrifice. If you remember, Abel had slain one of his animals before the Lord as a sacrifice. That was acceptable to God. Cain's sacrifice, we're not given all the details, was not acceptable to God. And in jealousy, Cain murdered his brother for that. They would remember that among Noah's first acts after landing the ark, the boat, on the mountains of Ararat was to offer a sacrifice of the animals he had just saved from drowning. He offered some of those animals as a burnt offering to God. Sacrifices which when the Lord saw those sacrifices, God received them and responded to those sacrifices by saying, I will never again destroy all life on earth. They would remember that Abraham 
was called in one of the scariest and hardest to understand stories in the Bible. He was called to offer his son Isaac. Do you remember that? He was actually called to offer his own son as a sacrifice offering to God. And his willingness to give up his own son, his only son. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) His willingness to give up his only son before God as a matter of his trust in God's ability to raise that son from the dead. His willingness to do that, his trust in God was enough. And God said, stop, don't offer him. And then God says this curious thing. Well, he does this curious thing. As soon as the hand is stopped, a ram appears. God provided the sacrifice for Abraham. We could name many more sacrifices that were sort of cropped up and surprised us in the Old Testament. But, but most important for our, the word today is the reality of this entire system that God set up for centuries for his people, the Jews. And most of you know about this, but some of you may not know. Israel, for its whole life of existence as a nation, was called to relate to God, Yahweh, through sacrifices and offerings at the temple. These sacrifices were first commanded through Moses when their first temple was was really just a tent. Their first temple was a tent called a tabernacle. And Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sons were set apart as priests to offer sacrifices for the people. And their first sacrifices as a nation were made with this tent in the presence of all the people that they had, they had put together just as God had called them to. And when they offered the first sacrifices there, the result was that God's presence came. His presence came as it wasn't before and drew near to them. And it literally invisibly descended upon this tent. And God, through the sacrifices offered, drew near to them. And they were near to God. Solomon, some 400 years later, builds a temple made of stone, a permanent temple in Jerusalem, this beautiful temple of stone and gold. And the, the Ark of the Covenant, remember Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, they find the golden box. Inside the boxes, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. That's a real thing. We don't know where it is anymore, but that, in that movie, that, that's a real thing. And, and there were tablets in it that were the, the, the tablets of the covenant, the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments which represented the agreement between Israel and the Jews. When they brought that box, that golden box, into the the temple, they put it in this place called the Holy of Holies, which was the most sacred room in the temple. And they made sacrifices. It it says in, in Leviticus that so many sheep and oxen that day that they inaugurated the temple, so many sacrifices, these blood offerings of these animals slaughtered. I mean, it would have been a, a gory, wild thing to see. They said there were so many animal sacrifices made that day that no one could count them. And then what happens? Again, just like it happened in the tabernacle day, the glory of the Lord comes down and draws near like he wasn't before. He draws near, and they're near to God. His glory fills the temple It's a sign of his presence and his commitment to dwell with his people. For hundreds of years thereafter, every day at the temple, there was perhaps a never-ending stream of offerings and sacrifices. The blood of these animals and the smoke of them being burned up on the altar of burnt offerings, which stood outside the temple. This 
This was the life of, this was the, the spiritual religious center of the Jewish mind. A constant interplay of God's holiness met with sacrifice for sin, sacrifice for impurity. And it went on for centuries and centuries. There were grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings and thanksgiving offerings and free will offerings, on and on and on and on, year after year, day after day. But each year it culminated in the biggest sacrifice of all. You guys may have heard of it before. It's called Yom Kippur. It means day, Yom Kippur, cover. You can almost hear cover in the word Kippur. It means day of covering or day of atonement. Day of atoning for sin. Day of covering our sin. On this holiest of holy days, this happened once a year. Like we have Christmas once a year. They had Yom Kippur once a year. There was one man and one man only who was permitted to enter the most sacred room in the temple. That temple was never to be entered into except for this one day. And when it was to be entered, it was to be entered in by only one man the great high priest of the people. The high priest would wear special clothes and he would wear bells on the hem of his garment so that if he did something impure or unright in the temple, I, I believe he would even have a sash tied to his ankle, that, that if God struck him dead, as God did strike Aaron's sons dead when they offered unrequired offerings to God and they broke God's rules about how to deal with his holiness in the temple. God struck down Aaron's sons. So they, would, they took that so seriously, they would, they would be ready to pull him out if he did something wrong in that holy room in his offerings, and, and God struck him down. So this was a very holy place, and it was here where that man would go, and, and he would, I'm sure he was terrified. I mean, I, I would have been terrified but he would go into this holy of holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the glory of the God, where the glory of God was dwelling. <clears throat> and first he would offer the blood of an ox for his sins and the sins of his family because he had to be pure if he was going to offer sacrifices for the people. And then he would take two goats. I know this is, <laughs> this is language that like, it probably sounds crazy to some of you, but, but, but it's got a real important meaning for us. He would take two goats one would be sacrificed and its blood would be poured on top of the Ark of the Covenant before the presence of the Lord. The top of the Ark was called the mercy seat. It was the place of mercy. Through the blood of the animal, through the blood of the life given over, God would have mercy. And it, it was specifically in Scripture, it was, it was made for the rebellion and the wickedness of the people. And the death of the animal and its blood were a sign of payment or atonement, an appeal for covering for the sins of all the people of the nation. And God's judgment upon the people for their sins was turned away by the blood of that sacrifice. And he kept his relationship with them through that sacrifice. And then the other goat, there were two goats, remember I said, on the other goat, the high priest would place his hands and in doing so, he would figuratively place the sins of the people upon the goat. In fact, in Scripture, it doesn't say anything about it being figurative. He says he will, basically it says, he will put the sins of the people on the goat, I believe. And he confesses the wickedness and rebellion of Israel, of the people, over the goat. And then the goat would be expelled from the people, and we walked out into the wilderness and left abandoned into the wilderness. And this was a sign that the people's sins 
needed to be separated from God's holiness and that they were and that their sins were also in this goat separated symbolically from them. Their sins were placed on the goat and the goat was removed from them. As far as the east is from the west, that goat was sent into a place never to be seen again. One animal slaughtered, one animal abandoned. And this communicated to the people both the serious offense that sin was to a holy God and God's provision to redeem them and love them and cover them and save them from their sin and push their sin away from them. But, but, but here's the part we have to grasp about all this that can be so foreign to our culture. But God spent thousands of years trying to say through these sacrifices and this system for the Jews, all this stuff, all this blood and all this burning of animals and all this, I mean, it just, we couldn't believe it if we saw it today. It would seem so foreign and strange and even if we know the Bible, it would, it would probably just be overwhelming. But he was trying to tell them through these institutions and these practices, year, week, month after month, I am holy. I take sin seriously. I, I cannot wink at it or sweep it under the rug. It must be accounted for. And yet, year after year of sin offerings also told the people something else. These sacrifices were never enough. These offerings were not the answer. For next year, there'd have to be more. And next week, there'd have to be more. More offerings, more offerings. There was no permanent cure for their sin debt before God. My niece, Kate, has diabetes. She contracted it when she was a little girl. She's really brave, and she's in her 20s now. But, but she has taken her shots dutifully every single day. Some of you guys might have relatives or might yourselves have diabetes. She has to give herself, a, I think she has to give herself a couple of different shots every day to keep her blood levels right. On one hand, it's a remedy for her, and each day it literally keeps her alive. On the other hand, it's also a reminder every day that she has diabetes. It's a reminder that she's not cured, and there's no cure yet for it. Diabetes can be kept at bay for now, but it's not going anywhere. And, and it still holds her life in the balance every day. She is in danger of death every day. And, and that is what these daily, monthly, yearly sacrifices told the people of God. Yes, they were a reminder of God's provision of forgiveness, but they were also a reminder that the disease of sin was still very much before God. Their sins were still very much present to him, requiring constant remedy, constant appeal. No cure had, be found, had been found for this great sin debt they owed God. And then after thousands of years of sacrificing and hundreds of years of institutionalized religious rituals, of sacrifices at the temple, into that world crashes Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews is going to pronounce 
something very different about Jesus Christ. And I hope that going through all that stuff we just went through will help you hear the author a little bit better today. And I'm going to say these words, and then we'll talk a little bit more about them. But listen to what the author of Hebrews says, and then we'll try to hear them better as we talk. <clears throat> For since the law, <clears throat> and the law he's speaking of is the law of these sacrifices, the law that says have a temple, have sacrifices, do all this, this stuff. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, why would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In these sacrifices, there's a reminder. The cure hasn't been found yet. The sin debt is still there. You still have the disease between you and God. Consequently, when Christ comes into the world, he said, sacrifices and burnt offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then the author stops and says, even though these are offered according to the law, even though all the Israelites were doing what God had commanded, yet God is saying, this isn't the answer. Then he added, Jesus adds, verse nine, behold, I have come to do your will. This really isn't the will that really satisfies you, but I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first, that is the first covenant of sacrifices and offerings to establish the second. And then these incredible words. By that will, the will of God through Jesus Christ that he's just been talking about, the will that Jesus says, I've come with a body prepared for me to be these sacrifices and do what they couldn't do. He says, by that will, verse 10, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. We have been set apart from sin for God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 11, and every priest, now he's talking about the Old Testament again, these sacrifices in the temple day after day, year after year. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered this is so important. This is the most beautiful words. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is so important, especially if, if you grew up Catholic like me. <laughs> Listen to these words again. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For, 
For listen, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, with these words, we're told that God knew that animals' blood could never atone for the sins of mankind. God knew this religion of sacrifices that he had set up was a shadow. A shadow always points to something else that's in the sunlight. It was the shadow, not the substance. If you put your hand on your chair or in front of you, you'll see a shadow. And for centuries, God is trying to teach the people something through the shadow. What's he trying to teach them? That there's something else. There's something the shadow refers to. There's something the shadow points to. All these sacrifices were a shadow that were pointing to Jesus. And so the author quotes Jesus in the Old Testament before he comes, hundreds of years before he comes, through David, Jesus is speaking through the Holy Spirit. This is so important because what God is saying is, while I have these sacrifices going, while the temple is set up as I command, while I've commanded these sacrifices, at the very same time, in fact, these words come before the temple is even, is even built. He's saying, yes, I'm building the temple. Yes, I'm gonna make it. But I want you to know it's a shadow. And he does that by, through Jesus, he says this, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, even though he's commanded them. God is speaking with two mouths. He's commanding sacrifices at the same time. Jesus in Psalm 40, <laughs> before the temple's even built, is saying, you have not desired these deep in your heart. This is not what's gonna satisfy you. But a body you have prepared for me, he says, this is astounding, miraculous, predictive prophecy. You've prepared a body for me. And then he says again, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus says, a thousand years before he comes through David, I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I, he's saying, it's written of me in this psalm as I'm speaking right now. These words are being written down about me. This is, I'm the one speaking. These words are being written down. They're about me. I'm coming, he's saying. I'm coming. Sacrifices of blood and goats and bulls, God commanded, but they could never take away our sin debt. But the will of God is better. The will of God is Jesus Christ poured out for our sins. There are no better words. I, I don't think there are any better words in the Bible than these words. By that will, we have been made holy. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, I don't think there are better words for my soul in the Bible than this. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. If we can get verse 12 up there, Logan, that would be great. Oh, Brandon. Thank you, Brando. There are words just as good. I just don't know if there are any better words in the universe than this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. See, the other priests were standing. They were standing 
all the time. That was their work. It meant they had to keep going. They were standing. He says it a few verses. The priest stands daily, year after year, ministering. He says Christ sits down. He's done. And he sits down at the right hand of God, the place of authority. And then verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All of those, all of us who are being sanctified, who have been set apart for God, who are being made holy, he has made perfect already for all time by his sacrifice. Jesus has offered for all time a single sacrifice for your many sins. And he sits down. He's finished. He's finished paying for all of your sins. Will you sin today? Tomorrow? Next week? Yes, you will. At some point, you don't have to if you're in Christ. His spirit has provided what you need to not do that. But at some point, you almost assuredly will. In, in thought or in word or in deed, you will fall short of God's perfect, holy, selfless, agape love. If you live long enough, and it may just take a few minutes, you will find in your heart that you're not loving him as he deserves. You will not love your neighbor as they deserve or as he commands you to. You will not lay down your life for them in some manner. And and all of these sins, a holy God cannot sweep under the rug. The world may tell us they're not sins or that if there is a God, he doesn't care about that, you religious weirdo. The world may just ignore the whole concept more and more altogether and sins turn into simply disorder and my past and my need. There's a lot of ways the world tries to deal with this issue of sin. But his word, centuries of sacrifices, the blood of animals and bulls and goats, the blood of his very own son, and all the thousands upon thousands who have died for his name will crowd and say, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. In your gut, you know there is right and wrong. God is holy. His eyes really are too pure to look on sin. He will judge the living and the dead. Every careless word, every hateful thought, every impure look, every lack of love for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, must be accounted for. Listen, I'm saying these things to you because I I want you to prize and be reverent before God, but satisfied that he is satisfied. And, and if, you, if you ignore the idea of sin, if you buy into what the world increasingly tells us about it, you denigrate his offering. We tell God what he is at our own peril when his word makes clear what he is. We tell God what he is at our own peril when his word makes clear what he is. If we, if we tell him he's not this God and that can't be what he says, that's a dangerous thing. But when we agree with him, when his spirit convinces us into our need, into that sin, he comes down. He comes down to meet us in that need. He doesn't leave us alone in that need. He doesn't abandon us into that need. And he doesn't partially deal with that need. He deals with it fully and completely. Though 
Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he came down and he took the form of a servant and he suffered the death of a crucified criminal to bear our sin. Holy God became perfect man without ceasing to be holy God. And he became our sin for us. And our sins were placed on him more surely than any scapegoat ever had the sins placed on him and was sent into the wilderness. Like that scapegoat, Jesus was sent out of the city and there he, fully God and fully man, is slaughtered as a blood offering for our sins. In accordance with the will of his father, See, what God called Abraham to trust him with, the sacrifice of his one and only son, but held back the knife. God didn't hold back the knife of his one and only son. And folks, that sacrifice, as great as our sins are, is so much greater. That provision of atonement, it, it, our sins can't compete with it. It's so much greater in its satisfying nature to God for what we've done wrong that our mistakes, our failures, our sins cannot match it. It's too powerful. It's worth too much in God's court. It destroys our sin debt. It removes our sins from us. And it just took one. Because this is holy God being offered. <laughs> this is the God man being offered. Infinite worth. Beyond. Beyond ability to, to capture. To all. <laughs> There's no end to his worth. And so there's no end to the power of this atonement. And so what is the effect of this atonement? Verse 14, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being made holy, he has already made perfect forever. Jesus' single sacrifice for sins was of such greater worth than the offense of our sins that it is an eternally effective sacrifice. My wife and I are, are in the market for a used, like, SUV-type car. You know, we're looking at a Honda Pilot or something. And I've been going crazy trying to figure this out. Because it's a lot of money. And, um, and we have the money, you know, so I appreciate, like, I don't want anybody feeling like they've got to help us with this because there are other times we need help. But we're not in a place where, where we have to have help with this. We, we can afford it at this point, but it's just so much money. <laughs> These cars are so freaking expensive. I, I, I can't believe it. Like tens of thousands of dollars for cars. And, um, and we don't want to go in debt. We don't want to finance it. I mean, cars today cost more than $10,000. <laughs> 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 
Many of them cost more than $20,000. Can you believe that? <coughs> this little car made of metal and wheels. It's like half of your life for a year, you know? For, for many of us, it's just like $25,000 for this thing? Like, I bought my first car for $4,000. I think it was awesome. It did everything I needed a car to do. But now I've got like 70 kids. And I, 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 I have to have like a big thing. And my wife wants it to be a really protective thing. And, you know, and um, but what if I like, I had like, I mean, just theoretically, Like, what if I could go into that dealership or that rental thing and just be like, I, there is no amount of money that you can ask me for that I don't have. <laughs> like, the kind of confidence I could have about if, if my whole life was just about this car, you know? Like, there is no amount of money that can eclipse what I have to get this car. <laughs> There is no amount of atonement needed that Jesus can't provide for our sins. It, it's inexhaustible. The value of the blood of Christ is inexhaustible. And it was already offered for you. It covers everything. It covers today. It covers tomorrow. It covers next month. It covers next year. It covers your dying plea, which might even be a hurtful thought. Can you imagine that? That your, your last thought on this earth might be that the nurse didn't empty your, you know, catheter. <laughs> and that's your last thought is, what about that lazy nurse who didn't empty my catheter? And then you're in the middle of, oh, I should, and then you're dead. <laughs> didn't get to go to confession. Didn't get to apologize to her. It covers that. And, and the author says it's so true that in Christ, he says he uses this insane word. He says, we're perfect. I don't feel perfect. I don't feel anything close to perfect. Like, I feel a lot of times the exact opposite of perfect. I felt, today I felt like one-third between <laughs> okay and desperate, you know? I told you guys at the beach, I, I was not perfect. <laughs> I, I was, I felt like I couldn't get more unperfect. I, but in God's accounting, he says, when it comes to your sin debt, you are perfect. You are perfect. You are perfect. You are completely forgiven. You are righteous in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he says, it is finished. It is paid, you are perfect before God. We don't feel it, <laughs> we don't act like it, but in God's accounting, because the blood of Christ is never forgotten by him, because Jesus sits at the right hand of God, our atoning sacrifice before him, we are perfectly righteous before him, covered by his blood. And yes, our sins grieve him, they hurt his heart, a and yet, in another sense, and this is where we have to be grown-ups, you know, we talk about living in the tensions, that the Bible says things we have to hold in tension. So the Bible does say that our sins can still grieve God. They can hurt our friendship with him. 
But if you're in Christ, they never change your status as forgiven son, forgiven daughter. You know, my, my little boys can do a lot of nutty stuff every day that can really tempt me, and, and they can tempt Hannah when she babysits. She's like back there nodding her head. I mean, you didn't take like a millisecond. It was like I didn't even finish. I'm like, my little boys can. She's like back there. Did you see that, Jen? <laughs> they love her so much, but she is, they are wiping her out. Um, but, but they do things that can really hurt me, and they can really tempt me to anger. But they can never do anything that will make them not my son. My daughter can, she is way too smart for me. She's an attorney. But I know that smartness and wisdom are not the same thing. And intelligence and love are not the same thing. And so she uses her intelligence powers and her smartness powers. And we just feel like we're in a corner sometimes because she's so brilliant. And so she can tempt us to weariness and impatience and frustration. And, but she can never do anything that would make her not my daughter. She's perfect in that regard. And we are in Christ, his sons, his daughters, perfect, forgiven, stand righteous before him. And the author goes on to, to sort of put the nail in the coffin of our sin with these words. And the Holy Spirit, this is verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is <laughs> forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Just a quick aside, the Bible is a beautiful book. It, it is just a miracle. <laughs> what I love so much about this passage is, is it's written in the middle of the Old Covenant. And in the very middle of the Old Covenant, while God is is fighting for the hearts of the Jews to keep his covenant. He is telling them, and while he's also disciplining them for not keeping the covenant, and while he's calling them to keep the covenant, in the very middle of that, with, with the prophet who's doing all that old covenant work, he says, at some point, someday, we're gonna get rid of this old covenant, and we're gonna have a new covenant. So no, no old covenant person can look at us new covenant people and say, oh, you switch things around. No, we can look at them, old covenant person, and say, your old, old covenant testifies that a new day is coming. Your old, old covenant testifies that a new covenant maker is coming, that a better sacrifice is coming. These, that's why this, this author of Hebrews is quoting so much of the Old Testament, so much of the old covenant, because he, he wants them to know the new covenant has integrity. This isn't a hoodwink, a, a smoke and mirrors thing. God planned this. In the middle of his old covenant, he's planning the new and telling you it's coming. And he says, the new covenant's not gonna be like the old covenant. I'm gonna put my spirit in your heart, and I will no longer remember your lawless deeds. I will no longer remember them. And how's he gonna do that? How's he gonna forget our lawless deeds? Just period. I'm gonna forget, it will, I will not remember your lawlessness. How will he forget that and put a period on it like that? when year after year our sins and the sacrifices for them are a reminder to him. When every Yom Kippur, every bloody goat and burnt cow is another reminder that my sins need accounting for and they need payment again and again and again. How is he going to just stop and say, no, there's a time coming, I'm going to remember them no more.
He says in verse 18, look at verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Is there any more offering for sin going on? Is, is, is Jesus still on the cross? Is he still paying the price? You guys can answer. <laughs> no, he's finished. And if he's finished, he's finished because you're forgiven once for all. That's why he says, I will remember their lawless, their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It's very hard for us to, to hold on to this because we live in the tension of knowing that we still struggle and we still have to fight with faith against our sin for love, for devotion to the Lord and laying our lives down for each other. We still have to fight against bitter words and gossip and lust. And, and God understands that and he wants us to fight with his Holy Spirit that lives in our heart because he's written his laws in our minds and in our hearts. But the tension is that at the same time we do that, we have to, we have to remember that we are already in Christ perfect. We are forgiven. We do stand righteous. Because if we don't remember that, we will become slaves again. And, and our attempts to live for God will exhaust us. And they, they, sometimes they do. Do you, do you experience what it's like to pursue God and pursue holiness and to slowly find yourself moving away from his grace and his gospel? And to suddenly find that you're trying to earn his love again? I experienced that all the time. I experienced it this week. And sometimes it takes me looking at a passage like this to realize, oh man, I'm exhausted. I'm doing it again. I'm trying to buy God again. I'm trying to be the goat and the lamb, <laughs> castigating myself. He says no. Yes, Sin is real. Yes, we should acknowledge and not pretend there is no disease or God will be dishonored and our disease will go untreated. We, but this is the gospel. Martin Luther had a, a I think it was a Latin phrase for it. He, he said, and Jared, you may have heard this before. Somebody may have heard this before, so correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but he had this this phrase, which basically meant at the same time, at the same time, a sinner and righteous before God. At the same time, we still struggle. James says we all stumble in many ways. First John says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But then he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He represents us before God. And he is our sin offering before God. We must hold on to that. We must hold on to this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. This is what saves us, this message, holding on to this message that we're forgiven in Christ, that his sacrifice is greater than our sin and greater than any animal, blood, goat. It, it, this is what we must tell each other. We have to remind each other. This is what we have to tell the world. And sometimes it's hard. We have to give the world a gospel. 
with a Savior who died for something. We, we can't deny the reality of sin to the world. We must not give the gospel simply a gospel of God loves you, period. That's all. Go on your way. Be blessed. He loves you. He's, he does love you. But he loves you so much that he's begging you to come to him. To come to him and receive his giving all love, his love that gets into the worst part of us, that sees us. His love that sees our laziness, sees our selfish ambition, sees our jealousy, sees our self-righteousness, sees our unbelief, our greed, our lust, our hurtful words, our gossip, our cheating on our taxes, our indifference to the poor, the subtle word designed to hurt our spouse, the, the putting of people's opinions of us over loyalty to God's heart. He sees it all. He doesn't pretend it's not there. But he takes it all upon himself. He takes all that upon himself and he covers it completely forever. And then he makes us a clean temple because in his eyes we're perfect, we're ready for his Holy Spirit who comes into our lives and sets us apart. And you know what the application to this message is? It's really in Holly's word today. If you look at what comes next in Hebrews, in this chapter, the, the very next words out of the, the author's mouth are, essentially, since God's perfected you, since he's made you holy, he says, come, draw near. Come into God's temple now. Come into that place where only the high priest could come once a year, where he dreaded going with great fear, where only one man could come only once a year. The author says, come right now, everyone, all the time. Come to the holiest place in the universe, in your hearts, and be with God. Be in his presence in the attitude of your mind, he's saying, be with him. Acknowledge that you're with him. Acknowledge that he receives you. And come and rest with him and ask him for what you need. Ask him for the grace and mercy you need to walk out the holiness that he's given you in Christ. The, 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 the angel had a flaming sword keeping Adam and Eve out of God's presence. All these sacrifices were telling people, don't draw near without sacrifice. The, the veil in front of the holy place was, was, I think it was seven inches thick at least, telling people, stay away, stay away, God is holy, don't come with, and now God says, it's, Jesus has taken care of all of that. It's all removed. It's all taken away. The, <laughs> there's no more flaming sword in front of God's presence in the garden anymore. It's taken away in Christ. Draw near, draw near, draw near. If you're here this morning and, and you sense God telling you, even, maybe for the first time, that you need this Jesus, that, that you are a sinner who stands in need before a holy God, well, please, please come to Jesus. He, I hope that in all this talk of all this theology and religious ceremonies, you, you don't miss this picture. Jesus has provided the way for you to have peace with God.
You don't have to provide it for yourself. You can't provide it for yourself. Admit that you're a sinner in need and turn to this holy God for forgiveness because he longs to give it to you. He longs to be with you. He longs to be in your presence and you in his presence. And if you will believe his free gift of forgiveness through the death of his son, he will give it to you. He will give himself to you. He will give his presence to you. Don't turn away from his offer of Jesus for your sins. There is a day you will face God face to face without all this pretense and, and all this infrastructure and all this material stuff that, <laughs> that hides our face from him. This world will leave you like a dream. Uh, you know, I watched my dad die. I've said this before in December. I don't know where he went, but he is not here. <laughs> you know, one moment he was in that body, the next time he was just gone. And I have not been able to find him since. But... To him, all this world, all this concrete and plaster and lights, it all just faded away like a dream. And he found himself in the presence of a holy God. And you will find yourself in the presence of a holy God without a doubt. He will either come to you or you will go to him. But this stuff will move out of the way. And it will just be your soul before his And on that day, he won't ask you, how do you feel about yourself? Or what, what does your parents do to you? Or what does your ex do to you? Or what does your boss or what does society do to you? He, he won't, that won't be primary on his mind. What will be primary on his mind is I'm a holy God and I require payment for your sin. And do you have my son? Are you resting on him? And so he offers his son to you now before that day so that you don't come to him too late. And he does that because he loves you deeply and he wants to save you completely. And for all of us, I just appeal to all of us this morning, let's bring anything in our hearts. You know, God's plan for you is to walk with him, to have fellowship with him. When the author said, by one sacrifice he has made perfect those who are being made holy, he said, those whom God has forgiven, he sanctifies. He, he draws them near. He, he grows them in love for him and in love for people. And that's a journey, that's a process with lots of hills and valleys, lots of stumbles and lots of falls. He knows. He was, the Hebrews author was telling a people who were in their lives very imperfect that they were perfect. He's, at different points, he's commanding them, put away the sin that's entangling you so easily. He's reprimanding them here and there. At the same time, with the same breath, he's saying, you're perfect in Christ. You're perfect in Christ. And so I, I just want to ask all of us, let's bring anything in our hearts, any sins we're hiding in the dark, let's take them again to our Savior. You can't beat them on your own. It's his blood that, that calls God's presence to draw near to you, not your perfection in yourself, and gives you power to walk with him. And may, may his great sacrifice wash our sins away in our thinking that they dominate us, that they, they, they're what identifies us before him because he's already washed them away in his son once and for all. Let, let's confess that. Let's agree that the blood of his son covers our imperfections, our failures, our sins.
Could I ask the ushers? Uh, communion? Folks? In a moment, we're going to take the bread and the juice. You know, it's, it's interesting. God, God got rid of the temple. In 70 AD, he ordained that the Romans would come and they would destroy this temple. And in doing so, they put an end to these daily sacrifices, these yearly sacrifices of goats and lambs and all this stuff and burnt offerings. And th that stuff hasn't happened since AD 70. It's been about 2,000 years. Some people believe they're going to build a new temple and they're going to start sacrificing animals again someday before Jesus comes back. I don't know. Any, I don't know what's going to happen with that. But, <laughs> but I know that that stuff doesn't, doesn't work for God. Jesus works for God. And so God took away all those rites and practices, but he left us with something. He left us with communion. We don't go to Jerusalem and bring a lamb and offer it on an altar and cut it and pour its blood over. He, he's taking care of all that in Christ. But he did give us this ritual to do, communion. We don't redo the sacrifice. I was talking to someone, I grew up Catholic, and, and, and what I thought I understood from their theology was that every Sunday at Mass, we would redo the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you understand what we just read today, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, we can hand out the bread and the juice. That would be great. We look at this sacrifice and we say, once for all, he has done it. And we remember that he has done it once for all. Thank you, Daryl. The Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed. I'm sorry, I need to wait just a moment more. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. We who are being made holy. Thank you, Lord. Let's eat together.
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. We who are being made holy. Let's drink together.